0: Hello, and thank you for joining the podcast, Emergency Minute. Your host is an emergency medicine physician who brings over 20 years of experience in healthcare. Dr. Parente will take you through some of the trending topics and challenges faced in the ER and all of healthcare. Join in the fight against misinformation, and don't forget to follow on social media at Dr. J Parente. Now, here's your host, Dr. John Parente. Welcome back, everyone. How are y'all feeling? Thanks for joining me this week for another episode of Emergency Minute. This week is episode 10 Hilarious Medical Things That Can Happen to the Human Body. But before we get started, as always, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for helping me launch this show. I could not do it without you. And if you haven't already left me feedback or a review on Apple, Spotify, Google, or even joined my professional Facebook page at Dr. J. Parente, I want you to do me a favor stand up, walk across the room. And I need you to look inside the mirror and repeat after me, I'm a bad friend, I'm a bad person, and then you can come back and start listening again. If you haven't checked out Episode 9, Medical Necessities When Traveling, you might want to do that and avoid getting traveler's diarrhea. And for those of you that do not follow me yet on social media, I am on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Dr. J Parente, so please check that out. All right, let's start this podcast out with a bang, literally high altitude, flatus expulsion, AKA HAFE. So HAFE is when you're at a higher altitude and you have flatus, meaning you pass gas or you fart with increased frequency due to pressure changes. Yes, this is a real thing. So this was discovered by physicians who were mountain climbing in 1980. They noticed that there was an odor when they were climbing and they were farting with increased frequency as well. So once they figured out that this was related to increased altitude, they had quite a laugh. They could pretty much fart on command. This is reminiscent of the second greatest movie of all time, Christmas Vacation, where Aunt Bethany says, Did I break wind? To which Uncle Lewis replies, Jesus, did the room clear out? Meanwhile, back to our climbers. They thought about different names to call this because they needed to give it a term. Nothing can exist in medicine without a name. So one of the terms that they considered was Rocky Mountain Barking Spiders. Yes, this is a real story. Absolutely hilarious and apparently a close cousin to Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is a real thing. Uh, Instead, they figured in order to be taken seriously, they probably need something a little bit more professional sounding. So they piggybacked off high altitude diagnoses of hape and HACE, which stands for high-altitude pulmonary edema, high-altitude cerebral edema, which is basically bad things that happen to climbers at altitude with fluid on the lungs or in severe cases in the brain. Hence, high-altitude flatus expulsion. Now, if you've ever been on an airplane, then you have experienced HACE as well. Airplanes are pressurized, so it's not nearly as severe if you're truly at that altitude. But another term that we often use is bubble guts, which can mean any myriad of anything, as it is a moniker that can be used for any number of GI sounds and sensations. A terrific quote from the physicians who discovered this, Drs. Arnold and Auerbach. I don't know why people are ashamed of it. It's a natural process, and at altitude, it's enhanced. And then he added, you shouldn't put your hind end into a campfire because backflashes are a real phenomenon. I've never heard of anyone exploding because of that but people have been singed where they don't want to be. Fantastic. All right, what's next? Uh, How about neuropraxia? What is neuropraxia? So this is a neurologic condition where a part of your body stops working. For the sake of this podcast, I'm referring to hilarious things that can happen to your body. I'm focusing on temporary causes of neuropraxia that some people find funny. Obviously, there are much more dangerous and permanent forms of this too, and there's nothing humorous about that. So in order to avoid offending everyone or anyone, I just wanted to say that in advance because we live in a very soft society where every single thing offends everyone. Moving on. So if there's an injury or undue pressure applied to the peroneal nerve, which is the nerve that runs lateral and outside your knee, you can have foot drop, meaning you cannot flex your foot up. So I had a patient once who was sitting Indian style with her. Can you say Indian style anymore? I'm not sure you can. Google tells me I cannot say this anymore, despite the fact that it was named for a characteristic sitting style of Native Americans. So now Google says we have to call this crisscross applesauce. Okay, all right. So I had a patient once who was sitting crisscross applesauce, much better, with her legs crossed for an extended period of time that had just enough pressure on the common peroneal nerve that it caused her to have foot drop. So for these patients, typically we have them take anti-inflammatories or sometimes even steroids, ice, stretch the area, and we do refer them to neurology. Most times, this diagnosis is self-limited, which means it just eventually goes away. However, if it doesn't, then the patients will need additional testing, such as an EMG, which stands for electromyelography, which is a painful test that basically will measure the nerve's ability, so to speak, in that muscle, to innervate that muscle. Another example of this would be wrist drop, which is from radial nerve palsy. I once had a patient that was on a long drive and had his arm out the window for a lengthy time period. He must have had just the right amount of pressure on that nerve, causing an injury with the temporary wrist drop. Not to be confused with lead poisoning, which can also cause this. Nothing funny about lead poisoning. So don't eat lead paint, kids. That's just good life advice. Actually, side note, most paints are not don't have lead anymore. So that's another thing that I guess I should have added to the... Medical myths that just won't die. All right, what's next? How about one of my favorites, scombroid poisoning? So this is a massive histamine reaction due to improperly stored or handled fish. So it causes this histamine reaction. Now histamine is heat stable and we're gonna get into this heat stable versus heat label or labile, which means even if you cook this piece of fish properly and, and heat it up, you still could get the poisoning. You usually see this with either tuna or mackerel, but you can also see it with anchovies, sardines. So how does this present? Well, it's an extremely intense histamine reaction. But where else do we see intense histamine reactions? How about allergic reactions, severe ones? But the important distinction is that scombroid poisoning is just that, it's a poisoning. This is not an allergic reaction. So this massive rush of histamine causes rashes all over, urticaria or hives, but it also causes flushing, and that's usually sort of the hallmark symptom, nausea, vomiting, sweating, diarrhea, dizziness, headaches, and it can even impact your lungs if you get some spasm and wheezing. Theoretically, if it got worse, you could lead to respiratory distress or even shock, and this can occur within 10 to 90 minutes after an ingestion, but usually it's out of your system within a few hours or at worst case scenario, a few days. What makes this diagnosis so difficult is that the fish will taste and smell the same, So it looks exactly like an allergic reaction. And it's not like you can detect this before because it's not like the fish is going to have a certain smell to it or a certain look. Like if we look at chicken and we're like, oh, wow, it's pink in the center. Like I should not eat that. But this doesn't exist for fish for scombroid. People will often then say, oh, I have a seafood allergy. But really, it's just poisoning from that particular fish. So, the treatment is antihistamine, such as Benadryl, Pepsid. If it gets severe enough, you may need steroids, and if it becomes life-threatening, which is extremely rare, then you would need epinephrine, which is adrenaline. But the majority of these cases are self-limited, which means they just kind of go away. Now, let's contrast this with a different type of poisoning that is even more interesting and one of my favorite syndromes, ciguatera toxicity. I've only diagnosed this once in my career, and I'm pretty sure the nurses thought I was some type of diagnostic genius after this case. CFP, or ciguatera fish poisoning, comes from a naturally occurring toxin sometimes found in reef fish, usually in tropical climates. Now, it can have a myriad of presentations from GI to cardiac to neuro, but the most famous symptom is the reversal of hot versus cold sensations. That's correct. You pick up something that's hot, and it feels cold. And you pick up something that's cold, and it feels hot. Very strange. It can also cause numbness and paresthesias, which are just basically another medical term for numbness. Most of these cases are self-limited and go away on their own within a few days. Much to my surprise, when doing the research for this podcast, I figured out that this was actually a reportable disease, which I learned today. In fact, most physicians don't even know this is a reportable disease according to a study that was performed. Usually, this type of poisoning is found in tropical or subtropical places, and in some areas where this is common, especially amongst the locals, they don't even seek out treatment because they know exactly what it is when they have the hot and cold sensations that are reversed. So, most of the estimates about how frequent or how prevalent this is are pretty inaccurate. However, from the data we do have, this is not common in places like the Caribbean, Florida, or Hawaii, much more common in places like the Marshall Islands or French Polynesia. All right, let's keep going down the seafood and marine life highway here. Another hilarious thing that can happen in medicine, although probably not very hilarious to the person it happens to, are heat labile toxins. So what does this mean? Well, there are certain stings that can occur in saltwater that will hurt a lot due to a toxin. Many of these are heat labile, which means the heat will deactivate the toxin and actually eliminate the pain. So if you see someone on the beach with their foot in a bucket, Assume that it's full of hot water, which is eliminating their pain. That's right. If you have one of these toxins and you submerge your affected body part, typically as you're going to be your foot or your ankle or your arm, in hot water, it will cause the pain to go from 10 out of 10 to you know close to zero out of 10. What are some examples of this? Well, sea urchins, lionfish, scorpionfish, stonefish, and stingrays are among the most common, and all have these heat-labile toxins. They do recommend treatment with what's called HWI, hot water immersion. And this is done for about 30 minutes in 45 degrees Celsius water, which is no joke. So that's 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Keep in mind your average hot tubs around 100. Usually people put it up to as high as 104, 105, and that's kind of the maximum recommended temperature. So this water is really hot. Now they make careful uh, recommendations not to have it scalding hot, like you don't want obviously your skin to be burning off, but it has to be pretty hot in order for it to work. Now, what do you think is better, putting it in hot water or immediately applying an ice pack? Well, they've actually studied this and it does look to be superior for us to use the hot water immersion as opposed to doing an ice pack or an ice bath to the area. Now, the other thing you have to consider is if you need a tetanus shots or antibiotics, especially if you have an infection or a puncture wound on the foot, or if you're diabetic, or if you're a smoker, you put those things together and it's a recipe for a disaster. Foot infections can be pretty nasty. And selfish plug alert, if you haven't already checked out Emergency Minutes Episode 9, Medical Necessities When Traveling, you should give that a listen because a lot of the things that we're talking about today and some of the things you can prevent or some of the things you may need, such as antibiotics, are covered in that show. Now, selfish plug alert number two, if you haven't already checked out Episode 8, Medical myths That Don't Die, you might want to check that out as well because I'm about to add another one. How about seawater? will wash out the wound and make it nice and clean. The salt will kill any of the bacteria and wash out the wound. Wrong. Incorrect. Salt water can have some pretty nasty organisms in it as well. Most common organism for my medical students and residents out there, anyone want to take a guess? That's correct. Vibrio, treated by doxycycline. Guaranteed that's on your boards if you're an emergency medicine physician. All right, speaking of medical students and residents... Has anyone heard of peeing on a jellyfish sting as the appropriate treatment? I'm sure you've seen the hilarious Friends episode where Monica gets stung by the jellyfish and they advise her to pee on herself. She just can't bring herself to do it, so Joey steps up and he's going to do it and he gets stage fright. Ultimately, it is Chandler who rises to the occasion and pees on her to treat her, to which Monica responds that he will always be the guy that peed on her. And she ended up marrying him, I digress. The reality is that peeing on someone has really never been proven to be of any benefit, at least not any physical benefit. I suppose there's somebody out there somewhere that gets some sort of psychological benefit from this, which I can't understand, but moving on. Now, is that because it would be awfully difficult to get individuals to sign up for a study like this? (laughs) Like, could you imagine? All right, we're looking for some broke-ass medical students. All right, you guys just go ahead and line up over there. We're going to give you guys 50 bucks. After that, You're going to take your leg, you're going to put it in a bucket full of angry jellyfish. Inevitably, they're going to sting you, and then we're going to take your leg out of the bucket. Um, We have a bunch of hospital administrators over here who have graciously volunteered their time to urinate on you to see if subjectively that helps your pain. Okay, you guys good with that? Any questions? (laughs) Could you imagine in this day and age when everybody gets offended by every little thing, the outrage with this study? Oh, that would be be, uh, fun to watch. Grab the popcorn. Alright, so there are far better options to treat jellyfish stings than peeing on someone. The first thing to do is to remove the tentacles and you need to be very careful when you do this. You see, if you grab the tentacles, you will get stung as well. Now, let's say you have on some really thick gloves and uh, you want to sort of grab the tentacles. It's still not a good idea because what happens is you incidentally will squeeze the tentacles and the nematocyst toxins into the wound even with just a little bit of pressure. So the best thing to do is actually grab a credit card and scrape along the wound, cutting the tentacles off at the base, at the skin, without pumping more toxin and more pain into the wound. Most people have credit cards with them at the beach in this day and age, so it is something that you wouldn't have to bring that's extra. Now, if you wanna bring something extra, you can pour vinegar onto the wound to help neutralize the toxin somewhat. Now, you can also use what we talked about before, HWI, hot water immersion, that we had discussed previously about those heat labile toxins from the injury. The vast majority of these injuries do not require antibiotics, but obviously that will be on a case-by-case basis, and if you think you need medical attention, you should go seek that out. Now, you may need some topical hydrocortisone cream or even antihistamines for itching and inflammation. There are some more lethal forms of jellyfish stings that require antivenom, but those are pretty rare and they are usually regionally specific. Again, at that point, you would want to talk to your medical professionals. So that's all I've got this week. So thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of Emergency Minute. And if you like what you've been listening to, please consider a review on Spotify, Google, or Apple, or share this show with somebody that you know. If I've offended you at all, please consider leaving me a nasty review as well. And you can follow me on any social media platform at Dr. J Parente. And as always, peace, love, and happiness to everyone out there. Cheers, guys. Thanks for joining us this week on Emergency Minute. Join us next time for more hard-hitting discussions on some of today's issues in healthcare. Don't forget to leave us a review on Spotify or follow on social media at Dr. J Parente.